0: Drugs rock and roll aliens and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself visit osbornmediahouse.com to get special access to Come to, on. What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet? Oh. <laughs>
1: Cults, cons,
0: conspiracies, these are a few of my favorite things. No, but seriously, (laughs) books about cults, cons, and conspiracies are some of my all-time favorites. So for our summer limited edition quarterly box, we've bundled three cults, cons, and conspiracy books to share with you for a limited time. The first book is Hey Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, and Supremacy, and the Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing by Emily Lynn Paulson the juicy tell-all memoir from a former top earner in a popular MLM. Because nothing says cults and cons quite like network sales. The next book in this bundle is Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang, which is sure to be on the bestsellers list when it releases in May. This scathing takedown of publishing and publicity is perfect for readers tapped into the book internet and anyone who loves an accidental con artist. Is June Song a con artist or a conspiracist, you tell me? Finally, we're featuring a book that's currently in development for film, The Honeys by Ryan Lasala. This is like *Midsummer* meets Mean Girls with a lovable, gender-fluid teen at the center of a cult-like group of teen girls with conspiracies right under their noses. Pre-orders for our Cults, Cons, and Conspiracies box opens on May 1st for shipment by June 1st, and we'll only have 100 of these boxes, so make sure you order yours ASAP,
2: no subscription required head to feministbookclub.com to pre-order yours today. Hey, 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 and welcome to the Feminist Book Club podcast, the show that brings you the best of the best feminist content. I'm your host, Neva from Notes by Neva, and today we're going to be chatting with my bestie, Morgan Sweeney, who is currently in training to be a bad bitch. I mean, she's currently in training to be a therapist. She just finished the first of two years of therapy school to be a marriage and family therapist. Morgan, I am so stoked to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. For sure. We're going to read me to filth, read uh, our listeners to filth, because today we're going to be getting into mental health and how the environment and systems around you can affect and have affected all of us. Awesome. Well,
3: like Beba said, I'm in a program to study couples and family therapy. And I kind of like to refer to as relational therapy because not every grouping of individuals is a couple or even like a blood family. But really, I study relationships. And there's three sort of main branches of therapy. If you're like looking to find a therapist, you'll probably look at like psychologists, mental health counselors, social workers, and then MFTs, marriage and family therapists, or relational couples of family therapists, however you have it. What really differentiates our sort of approach to mental health is our focus on not just relationships, but also sort of the systems that we as humans are a part of. The cultures and
2: communities and environments that kind of shape us into the people we are. Gotcha. So everything from like the family that you're in, the friends that you choose, the work that you have, the privileges that you're born with, the privileges that you gain. I'm curious, how does this fit into like a very individual focused thinking? Because like here in the West, everything is about the individual. That was actually a huge reason why I wanted to choose this branch of therapy.
3: Just Western thought in general and kind of scientific thought tend to focus on the individual as the unit of change and like ability to make You know differences and like have control over your own life, but in reality, like we are all connected constantly. Obviously, you are a separate individual, but you are so connected to your culture and the environment you grew up in and the other people that surround you. You just lose a lot of context if you look at the individual as the way they are. And obviously, for scientists to be able to make conclusions out of things, they have to be able to simplify it, and so they have to look at individuals. and I think that's a big reason why the field of psychology went in that direction. But in order to really change a system and bring like lasting change you have to in my opinion look outside the individual no man is an island no person is born into this world without the influence of other things so we're all born into not just families but cultures and like norm societal norms that were told through media through expectation of the people who surround us i think that by just looking at a person and thinking that they are the ones responsible for The way that they see the world or the life they've been exposed to really ignores a lot of the privileges they are born into, the culture, just the world. Like, none of us are responsible for creating the world. And so to think that an individual can control or even just manage all of the things that
2: make them who they are, I think is just a little short-sighted. I feel like as you studied this and delved into structures that are, like, influencing you, you probably got a lot into your own family structure and your childhood and your upbringing. Was there anything surprising that you learned about yourself in all of this? Oh my gosh, so much. When you're in therapy school, they teach us ways to
3: help our clients and specific strategies to use to help them. But a big part of what they teach us is how to work through our own stuff so that it doesn't come up in session with clients. Because if you're seeing a client who reminds you of your dad and you're having all these emotional reactions that like bring you back to that place that you were when you were a kid, you're not going to be able to show up for them in the way that they might need. And so a big, big part of the work is working through our own stuff and figuring out how that shows up for us, how that made like us as therapists, the people that we are today and how that influences our work. I mean, everyone thinks their family is normal growing up because it's it's what we know. But being in class with all these other therapists in training and talking about our families is like, oh, everyone has skeletons in the closet. Every single family has like things that they hide, things they're ashamed of, has like norms and expectations. Like no one is perfect. And even the families that like give off the illusion of perfection always have things that they're struggling with themselves. And so it's been really like humanizing and just profound for me to be like, oh, my family's not the only one that's like messed up and complicated. And like, actually everyone has issues and that's
2: just part of being alive in this world. Everyone's family is fucked up. And if you think yours isn't, you're just (laughs) lying to yourself and you just don't know how yet. (laughs) How do people even begin to realize like what things are currently influencing them and what things have influenced them if like, you know, that's just what you grow up with and what you think is normal?
3: That's a great question. And honestly, I think this is one of the biggest Issues with therapy and just with like the inequality in our world, like it really is just a question of access. Like if you have only like lived in the same place or been around the same people your whole life, you're not going to know like there is a different potential that there are different things out there. So much of what allows people to access therapy in the first place, like you need some amount of like knowledge that there are people out there and believe that they're actually going to help you. There are definitely ways in the past, like psychology and therapy, have been used like harmfully, and that's really valid. But I think, like, fundamentally, listening to your emotions, as, like, simple as it might seem and as hard as it might actually be to put into practice, so much of us grow up with just a normalized amount of, like, stress or sadness or, like, anger that we just think is normal. We live in a culture that doesn't really let us feel our emotions or doesn't tell us that it's safe, especially as women. Our culture tends to shame us for, like, having emotions or for needing to act (laughs) on our emotions or having needs, period. And so. Just like letting yourself feel what your emotions are and then figuring out like where that comes from and figure out where like how you manage that. Like so much of therapy really is like insight oriented of like looking into yourself and feeling what you're feeling and like thinking about where that's coming from and what you want to do with it.
2: There's a lot of structured ways to look at your feelings like journaling and meditating and so forth. But when you're in like an actual situation, how can people begin to cultivate that practice of listening to their feelings?
3: That's an awesome question. This is something I definitely struggle with sometimes too. I think it's cultural. Like we live in a culture that's so quick and so disconnected from our bodies. Sometimes you just have to take a second, slow down, take a deep breath, take three, take five, like whatever it takes. Also, something I've been doing a bit more recently, physically touching your body, like moving your hands along your shoulders, along your legs, like reminding yourself that. You have a body and then it's attached to you. And also, like you said, having those practices, the more that you cultivate practices that allow you to check in with yourself intentionally, the easier it's going to come when you're actually in a moment and you're feeling something. A big reason why, like, I got into this field, relationships, having people in your life who do talk about their emotions, who do tune into the way they're feeling and like feel comfortable sharing that, having a therapist, having a space and dedicated people who make it feel safe and. Allow you to feel the way you feel
2: and will love you no matter what. It's a huge privilege, but it's something that makes a huge,
3: huge difference.
2: Yeah, I'll admit that the first time I realized that people get to have this and they get to have this for more than just one person, it really shook me. And I was like, holy cow, you're telling me that people get to have relationships that are this deep and this trusting and this honest. I'm glad we're talking about it as a form of privilege because when you're in a situation or upbringing that's so so stressful it tends to kind of cultivate really shitty fucking mental health and it just trickles down and expands into everything where like you were saying we don't exist in isolation absolutely I don't think you can talk about mental health
3: without talking about like the systems of oppression that like got us to where we are like racism sexism homophobia like there are so many ways that like our culture is built for like straight white men And even as straight white men, there's ways in which they can or can't be themselves. There are so many ways that we're expected to be people that we aren't and so many messages we pick up. And so there's this just pervasive feeling that like, you know, I as an individual, I'm not enough. And how can you like live a happy life or be engaged in the things you are when you're constantly battling that feeling of like shame and guilt and sadness and anger and I mean rage like from being oppressed we are in a huge mental health crisis in our country and it's very obviously because there are systems of oppression that make it so that you cannot like physically you know feed your family or like be emotionally available because you're so exhausted from like working three jobs the fact that everyone isn't depressed all the time with all of the things we're (laughs) fighting in our culture right now is honestly incredible and speaks so much of the resilience and the resources that every person has and like uses to just navigate their lives
2: what's frustrating to me is that sometimes a lot of these solutions are so small and quite frankly they're just like fucking boring you know <laughs> it's like oh mm-hmm. how do you feel better you just like <laughs> eat food sleep right have friends and i'm like man this shit's boring What? why is it that like all of these solutions are so fucking boring this is a genuine question <laughs> no it's a great fucking question honestly it's because
3: like fundamentally, we are like biological animals. Like as much as we created a culture and a society that like ignores our biology and like minimizes it as much as physically possible for efficiency and productivity and fucking capitalism, at, like the base of it, we're just bodies that need to eat things and drink water <laughs> and like get sunlight and have vitamins and minerals and like. And we're so hardwired for connection. Like, I'm really glad you mentioned relationships. Again, like, I think relationships are incredibly important to me in my life. And I think our culture doesn't value them the way that I think we need to in order to, like, be mentally well. The same way that a wolf that grows up separated from its pack is like Honda Grace can be like sad and lost and like freak out all the time. Like if a person grows up in isolation and doesn't have like the resources they need, of course they're going to feel like shit. Like as much as we are evolved and we create all these things, we're also like not that evolved. So like actually getting a full night of sleep and like (laughs) eating good food that nourishes your body and like exercising, like as basic as these things are and as boring and unexciting as they can seem, they're actually like where... The basics of our lives come from. Like, if you think about how much energy your body is constantly putting towards, like, keeping your heart beating, keeping your lungs pumping, like, most of us don't even think about all the intricacies of how our bodies work until we're, like, sick or something's broken. But, like, living just keeping your body alive is a lot of work. And the fact that we
2: live in a society where, like, we don't even think about it. I love this reframing of it as just, like, we're just meat sacks trying to take care of our meat sack. And I'm realizing, like, If we honored and actually, like, valued taking care of our meat sack selves, maybe that would be worth a little bit more. (laughs) Do I actually get a gold star for sleeping a full night? I feel like that would motivate me. Exactly. It's capitalism, right? Like, we see ourselves
3: and our value as, like, what we can produce, or especially as women, like, what we can do for other people. But in reality, like... We're just like fucking large bacteria just trying to live from like one moment to the next and like, you know, maybe have a good time while we're at it and like procreate if that's something that you're interested in.
2: Like, that's it. <laughs> Life is not that complicated. I love that. And one last thing I wanted to touch on is the purpose of therapy to be finding a solution or is it to be to like understand yourself or is it just something else entirely? I'm so, so glad you
3: asked this because I think, and different people are definitely going to give you different answers to this. But The way that I like to think about therapy and the kind of metaphor that I like to use is one of like just fitness or like wellness almost. And this is partly because I really enjoy fitness. I'm a yoga teacher and aerial instructor, and I really like enjoy feeling like the limits of my body and allowing myself to like grow past them. And I think of therapy the same way. I'm like, to me, therapy is a spiritual practice. It's a way that you can grow yourself and become a version of yourself that feels more right to you. It's a way that you can gather tools and resources to just allow yourself to become the person that you want to become. And obviously there's this narrative of like, oh, you're broken. You're see a shrink. Like they're going to fix your depression. Like, you know, give you a pill. Like that is one way that our culture talks about therapy. But to me, it's so much more than that. It's a space where you are not only like allowed to be who you are, but like who you are is celebrated and encouraged, and for what it's worth, like I don't think therapy is the only way to become like the fuller, more holistic version of yourself. A lot of the practices you mentioned earlier, of like journaling, meditating, checking in with yourself, allow you to do these too. But individual therapy, like group therapy, is also super powerful. Another metaphor I kind of liken it to is like you know, if you like want to get stronger arms because you're having like back problems, like you can go to group classes, you can work out on your own at home, or you can like get a personal trainer. To me, like. Having individualized therapy is like having a personal trainer. You're going to get the most bang for your buck. You're going to have like the most progress because there's someone else who's invested in your growth and they're like experts in what they do and they're there for you at like a set time. And so there's that structure and it makes it a lot easier for you to succeed at your goals. But of course, there's so many other ways to become the person you want to become. And so I think when I talk about therapy and like what it means to me, it's more just like how do you as an individual want to live your life? How do you want to experience your emotions? How do you want to navigate your relationships or your career or your environment, your family? It's a way to figure out what matters to you and what you value and the way that you want to become the person that you want to be.
2: Very like meaning of life. If we're all going to the doctor to make sure that we like are not getting cervical cancer, we should probably also be going to therapy because health insurance knows that you don't want to be looking for a therapist when shit hits the fan, because that'll take forever. May as well already be in it. Seriously, on what you said about going to the doctor,
3: like, I don't think people really understand the way that mental health like impacts our physical health. Recently, the Surgeon General said that people with severe loneliness, it essentially gives you the same risk as if you were a smoker. There's so many studies like this that show that, like, being lonely, being depressed, being anxious and stressed out constantly, like, these things make us more likely to have like autoimmune diseases to like contract cancer. Like so it affects our health so dramatically and drastically and intimately. <clears throat> and I think our culture really likes to think that the mind and body are different, different. but they're not like, we really are like he said, just meat sacks with like a bunch of thoughts running around in our heads, but it's all connected. And the more that we're able to see that, like the way we feel, in our heads and in our hearts is also the way that we feel in our bodies, the better we're able to take care of those damn meat sacks and like enjoy our lives, because we're only here for so long. And I personally want to do something that feels meaningful and important.
2: This has been simultaneously very uplifting and depressing at the same time, but I'm really glad to have meaningful relationships in my life, especially with you. Where should people go to contact you if they have any questions?
3: Oh, well, first, that's really sweet. Thank you. And yeah, that's fucking therapy. It is like really hopeful and uplifting because there's so much potential for change and growth. And also like really fucking depressing because sometimes it's the hardest things people have ever experienced. So that's real and that's life too. If you want to talk to me, you can find me at, on Instagram. My handle's Morgano, M O R G A N N O O. I mostly just post photos of my friends, but feel free to like be internet
2: friends. That's always fun. That's actually how an even I met was as internet <laughs> friends. So anything could happen, really. So listeners, feel free to slide into her DMs. For the record, I did not slide into her DMs, but I could have. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss or a question you have for me, my DMs are open and you can find me on pretty much any platform, YouTube, Insta, Twitter, TikTok. At That's all for now. And I'll see you
1: on the next page. So hi, my name is Ashley. I'm a feminist book club content contributor, and I am joined today with Emerson Whitney. He is the author of Heaven and the poetry titled Ghost Box. Emerson recently completed a postdoctoral fellowship in gender studies at the University of Southern California. Emerson teaches in the BFA Creative Writing Program at Goddard College. And he joins us to talk about Daddy Boy. Emerson, thank you for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: My first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism?
4: Wow, it is a word that I... (laughs) relate to in some ways loosely and in some ways closely. For sure, my experience of feminism hasn't always been connected with the movements that I connect most closely with. For me, feminism has to include um, you know, my idols and elders like Miss Major, Miss Major Griffin Gracie, for example, and others who prioritize and center black trans femmes specifically.
1: And so my next question for you is, what is Daddy Boy about?
4: One of the major streams of it is really about what it means to age. And in some ways, I'm asking that question from the place of not necessarily feeling like I had access to to childhood, partially because of my family structure and how it was really important for me to become an adult for my caregivers when I was really young, but also because trans people don't necessarily have a lot of role models. It's part of why I point us to Miss Major because really that people like me, other folks that really have walked before me are really my compass. And so this book, often heaven was called a coming of age book, uh, an autobiography that was about coming of age. And I feel like daddy boy is, is like asking what even, like what is age? Is there such a thing? as as becoming an agent of oneself, I use like a random St. Vincent quote. And their argument was like, daddy just means getting comfortable in your skin. And in the book, I'm using the word skin, who gets to be comfortable? And what does that even mean? And yeah, I think also it was about getting divorced. Uh, it was also about Looking into the father figures
1: that that are in my life. I read the pitch for this book that was given to us. And my reaction was, oh, oh, because disability, transness, adoption, divorce is defined by people who are in those communities or who've never had those experiences. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's more to it. But to have a book for someone who's had those experiences who are from those communities is such a blessing to mm. have on the page. How do you own your story while telling your story?
4: I think I'm still working on it, but you know, hearing you say that really does I I felt suddenly anchored into this space when you said that. Because in some ways, I guess what I struggle with is is story. I, I come from a family with a lot of neurodivergence and a lot of difficulty. And I think as a result of that, some of the ways that the people that raised me saw the world was very fluidly. Like I just did the audiobook for this book. And in there, I say the word Romani. And I think I even said it like in a different way. Because my family has never ever used that word to describe mm-hmm. ourselves, but it is the quote unquote correct term. And her typical use is the G word. She uses the slur to describe her background and mine through her. So, in some ways, I even wondered when I put that down and when I said it out loud in the audiobook, I was like, oh, is like my uncle gonna be like, what even is this word? Story does feel so acutely personal but also in some ways i feel as if i'm co-creating my story our story um the collaboration that happens between me and the reader means so much to me and so hearing you just now reflect back that constellation of of identities or subject positions that i occupied it always somehow feels new (laughs) like that is true like right And it's almost, it makes me feel very vulnerable, actually. Like, I feel like I'm blushing right now.
1: Briefly explain
4: (laughs) what Romani is. is, It is a lot of different communities, actually. It's a name for a lot of groups that are ethnic Romani people. So I'm trying not to use Mm this word, but it's my particular background is Hungarian, Slovak, G word. There's Romani folks all over the world. But a lot of people, when it's written down that aren't familiar, think of it as being from Romania. But it is not Rumi. It's folks that were in exile from actually the Punjab region of India, and eventually made their way through the Balkans and into the West, quote unquote. And yeah, so face a lot of discrimination all over the world. Particularly, folks that occupy those positions that are melanated. It's much harder for for folks, especially in Eastern Europe, and especially in Hungary. It's really gnarly. Yeah.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, and so. I love the way the book begins. You tell us the name of the people in your life, but then we soon or later on get a description of who they are to you, or we we learn who these people are to you, even as we know their name. So it made me think about memory and its unfolding. What did you decide to tell, and how did you decide to write about your family?
4: I do a little bit of a meditation almost every time before I start writing. And part of my my favorite aspect about working in the long form, writing out a full book, is the feeling of being in a state of presence that really feels like home to me. And when I'm in that space is usually when I'm working. I try to do it in the morning because that's the most accessible time for me. And so... When I'm in that state, I'm just kind of going for it. And I typically ask those thoughts that are like, How are how are they gonna think about this? Are they gonna be mad at, at me? I try to sit those in another room. I actually historically have even like put a little like made a little spot somewhere with a candle and been like, can you all please go sit there? And I'm gonna be here and I'm gonna worry about you when we're done. I'm definitely a, you know, a spectrum person. And so the quality of my life is very sensory. I'm really hyper aware of all, all the little things that are going on around me. And I am actively recalling those throughout the day, whether I want to or not. <laughs> so that's usually what enters there first. And then as, as those kind of images get made, people emerge, it forms a story. <laughs> and yeah, my family's in there, my ex is in there, others who I love. And I try to ask permission when, we're at the end stage, like I'm saying, when I invite them back, I, I often am like, okay, do you all want to read this? And this book is a bit sexy. So there's, I did not really feel like sharing this with my brothers or Hank in the book or, yeah, like I just didn't want to do that. And luckily they were, they got accustomed to this from, mm-hmm. and, and just my whole life. So they were like, mm, oh, we're good. And Hank, in true form, told me this story about Troy Aikman, whose dad was the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. But he was like, Troy Aikman's dad was a farmer. And he was like, someone interviewed the dad and was like, why are you going to go see Troy like throw the football or whatever? And the farmer dad was like, no, like, is he going to watch me farm? Like, Hmm. is he going to come here and watch me do this? And like, no, so I'm not going to go there and watch him do that. So Craig Craig Hank was saying like, I don't need to come see you do your job. So I was like, that's Yes, so But yeah, it's very, it's, it's so interesting to have had to have to their
1: permission. The story that you write is so poetic as you are a poet. Who well, and what inspires the world that you want to know? Oof,
4: so many. And my relationship with poetry is very core. So you're absolutely right. There's just a huge list of poets and thinkers that make up who I am and how my writing works. Just off the top of my head, Fred Moten is someone I look to like I look in the direction of the sun. I'm really excited by other folks that are playing with language, the line, prose, all of those little little tools. I feel sometimes like I'm doing something other than writing. I love that this toolbox Ephemeral, you know, my spouse has tools behind me for painting and making stuff. But those those tools I can't necessarily like pick up and look at except for in a book. Mm. So, you know, like Ilya Kaminsky's work, Deaf Republic, as a as a wonderful tool for me. I, I think about language through that book all the time. I really appreciate contemporary disability work that's that's being made all the time right now. Eli Clare someone that I read. Very regularly, and all that cool Sims Invalid has so much amazing stuff right now on their online. They have like a school that they're offering. If anybody doesn't know their work, I really, really recommend all that they do. And they're a beautiful. They have beautiful ways of entering the world of knowing about disability, very poetically, theatrically, creatively.
1: Thank you. And something that I I gathered while reading the story was storm chasing how much that related to real life just the storms that we have in our life how they unravel and how we take control of them or how they become out of control and then there was a quote about childhood and how that relates to storms a bit and I just would like for you to talk further about just that exercise of being a part of this team that you made and sort of a family and Mm -hmm. how that related to how you viewed your upbringing and your your life at that present time.
4: Thank you for that. Yeah. Your read is, is right on. And in some ways, I, I love that you also bring in the, the idea of making that family. And I think if I were to look at this from maybe even the lens of neurodivergence, like I was obsessed with whether as a kid, I didn't even know why. I still don't know why. It was totally nerd alert, special interest. Like I studied all the clouds and I'm like everyone. My family does talk about how I was sort of incessant and I had a big know-it-all vibe. And I'd be like, Grandma, like when this this cloud looks like this, we gotta go inside. And this book, in some ways, was permissiveness around like going into special interest zone with with a total care for that part of me that that hit this aspect and these aspects. Like I, I wanted to be cool. This wasn't like a cool thing to do necessarily when I was in middle school and high school. I was not being cool when I was engaging with stores. And so, yeah, when I was like, I'm going through a huge life change and I'm like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to indulge this this little kid basically inside of me. And what was amazing was I met all these other people <laughs> who had the same special interests and I had no idea that that was going to happen. I really thought I was not going to get along with them because that I thought they were going to be like the people that wear those flying squirrel suits and like do these little like cliff jumps. Like, and what to me that had meant was that I was like going to be people who maybe I didn't identify with in relationship to class, for example, or masculinity or whiteness, the ways that they operate. I'm racialized as white and I, I operate in a space very regularly with I mean always with safety around that and yet my my vision of having this experience I imagined feeling unsafe and that was exactly the opposite of what happened I felt very cozy with everyone and I think all of us were allowing ourselves I guess this this big time nerd moment and it felt great
1: wonderful and I love the pop culture references in the book. You talk about the parent track and connect the story or the film so personally to your life. There's a P.D. Pablo reference and also Snoop's show about the Pop Warner football team. And I just wanted to acknowledge like anytime someone writes about pop culture so wonderfully and connects it to, to their real life is special to me. Oh, thank you for saying that. I was just thinking about
4: this the other day because I zoom in on certain things in my own day-to-day. It does feel awkward. Like I'm often like, mm-hmm. does anyone know what I'm talking about? So it does feel
1: really nice to to hear that. You said that you have a reading in Dallas. What is your relationship to Texas? And how has that evolved since you become older?
4: My brain goes, like I even make the little face like emoji that's like. Mm-hmm. As my experience of it was as, intense as is being portrayed. I did not experience a lot of ease around, you know, being queer and trans for sure. That was a thing when I was growing up. I have heard that it has, at least Dallas, like there's some amazing queers that live there. My thoughts are just so with all of the trans youth. My heart is breaking, truly. The way that brown and black trans people were treated in the Capitol, I'm not surprised that part of me that wanted to write this book and and that wanted to go back was a part of me that's always been scared of this. When I was young, I was in like a, a troubled kid group in my high school that was like got removed from like during the school day, we would like go to a different like area of the school. But like, I don't know how it was helpful. But there was one other person there who was like, I'm trans and told me and like wrote me a beautiful like poem and like, did a spoken word for me like outside and I I was like so scared of this person. Mm-hmm. And I wish I like who are you by the way? Like if anyone ever knows who this person is, I would love to hang out, but I don't remember your name or know who you are, mm-hmm. um, because it was not okay to be like that in my high school at all. So I think I think my desire to go back was maybe with some hopefulness of like, is it is it all right? And and I mean, it's just so devastating, especially for people who occupy positions of transist and an intersection of any kind. I have a friend who always says, I know that we will win. I don't even know what we're trying to win. Like, we just want to be okay. But yeah, I have a lot of friends who are moving out of Texas. but And yet, that's where I... That's a lot of where I grew up. It's like the images that are familiar to me. Like I'm, I'm so excited to bring my spouse and to go around and eat. I do try to go back and visit Hank like every year and every time I get on a plane, I have all these mixed feelings. So I appreciate other folks like joining me and having them. I'm still such a fan of a, a lot of the cultural aspects of, of growing up there and being a part of that, that community, whatever it is and however it evolves. I just. I just want it. I just want a safe world for for trans kids.
1: Yes, and as your friend said, we will win. Trans people simply just want to live, live in their body, live in their skin, live in their truth. That's all that is being asked. And there's so much pushback for no reason other than you don't want to see people live in their truth. I hope that that's that continues to be the message and what's what's in the forefront because too much is just happening for people to simply live in their truth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So where would you like our audience to buy Daddy Boy from?
4: Oh, thanks for asking that. I Bookshop Online is great. I have some very favorite bookstores and a lot of those ones are ones I'll be going to on this tour. So if people want to see where I'm headed, they can go to my website which is just emersonwhitney.com. There's my little tour poster that they made for me. And if if that's not possible, McSweeney's has it on their website and that's great, but also bookshop.org.
1: And I also want to say the the book is just this vibrant green with a, a storm in the middle of it with daddy boy and Emerson Whitney and beautiful bold block letters. It's beautiful in the stack. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that. I and and, and Emerson Whitney, thank you for joining us to talk about Daddy Boy. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure.